Well, our passage today is 1 Samuel 25. So I want to encourage you to turn there. And due to the length of the chapter, I am this time going to read just the first 13 verses now, and then we'll pick up the rest of them later as we work through the passage. Of course, realize that all of this chapter is the inspired, inerrant word of God. Let's stand as we do read these first 13 verses in 1 Samuel 25. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel, and the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters, Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word today, I pray that you would help us to understand these words, apply them to our lives, but also, Lord, ultimately to understand why you had them written, why these particular events, why in your will these actually even took place, and and Lord, help us to know more about you and your kingdom today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, chapter 25 begins with telling us that Samuel died, and that, that may seem abrupt because we haven't heard much about Samuel in the past few chapters, but don't take a quick mention as an afterthought, as if it was just inserted here for historical detail. Samuel was a father to both David and Saul, and he had held the nation together at many pivotal points. So why mention his death here and so briefly? I think it's because at the end of the last chapter we hear, for the first time, Saul's acceptance of Samuel's words. You can see them in verse 20 of chapter 24. And now, behold, I know you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. And in a sense, in that moment, Samuel's job was over. His words were vindicated, God's judgment was acknowledged, and it was just a matter of time before David would step into his anointed role. 
And yet, all was not fully well, was it? We might have expected David to return home, even to have participated with the rest of the nation in mourning for Samuel. But David remains in the wilderness. And we should ask why. Well, Saul's impulsive temper, his fickle heart were only too familiar to David. And he knew better than to think that everything was suddenly better. And so while Saul returns to Gibeah, David remains in the wilderness of Paran, where just a few months ago he had been fleeing for his life. And there wasn't a lot of food available in the wilderness. And there were 600 mouths to feed. And the custom of the day was that when a warlord was in the area, he would protect the farmers and the shepherds from thieves and wild animals. In return, at harvest time or sheep shearing time, the farmers and the sheep owners would feed the warlord and his men. And that's what David is expecting. That's what he thinks will happen. And his request is humble. It's respectful. It was certainly in line with the culture. So he sends his men to the flock's owner, a man named Nabal, and he doesn't demand sheep as payment for his services. He doesn't show up with his troops and force Nabal and his family to feed him. Instead, he sends emissaries who remind him of how his men had protected his flocks. And then he asks that his men would find favor in Nabal's eyes. In fact, David uses the phrase, your son, David, that was very similar to what he had said to Saul in the last chapter when he calls Saul his father. It's a respectful, honoring, humble position, and it all should have gone very differently. David and his men should have been invited to the feast hosted by this wealthy man that we've already read about in the chapter, his wife Abigail. It would have been a joyous time. Nabal could have thanked David for having actually made him wealthier by protecting his possessions. But instead, what do we read in these first 13 verses? Seven times in one sentence, Nabal says, either I or me or my. My sheep, my shearers, my bread, my water, my meat. And so what else should we expect, I suppose, from a man whose name Nabal literally means fool? We might be tempted to think that Nabal didn't know who David was, but trust me, he knew. Not only was David well known to the people of Engedi due to Saul's search for David, I mean, it's not often that you have a man with 600 warriors running from town to town, being pursued by the king of all Israel and his men. Certainly, Nabal knew about it, he was well informed. And David's already known throughout Israel for his slaying of Goliath and his leading of the Israelite army in earlier years. Nabal even refers to David as the son of Jesse. So there's, there's no question that he knew who he was. He's no escaped servant. No, no servant has 600 men following him. The more you think about it, the, the bolder and more foolish Nabal's actions and words actually seem. Even if you think you don't owe David anything, are you just going to insult a man who has 600 warriors with him? It's foolish. And it reminds me of an event that happens a little later when David is actually king and he sends some of his men to express condolences to the king of the Amorites, Hanun, 
whose father has just passed away. And what does Hanun do? Many of you know that story. He treats David's emissaries with disrespect. He publicly humiliates them. He accuses them of being spies, and then he sends them back to David. And 2 Samuel 10.6 says that when the Ammonites found that they had become a stench to David, that they then hired tens of thousands of mercenaries to protect themselves. And you read that story and you go, come on, really? What fools? The Ammonites end up losing their money and their lives after going to battle against Israel. And it's the same thing here. But Nabal doesn't even have any mercenaries to protect him against 600 men. He, he is a fool. And so he says, essentially, who does David think he is? He's no more to me than some escaped slave. He wants me to take my bread, bread that belongs to my people, and give it to him? Like, that's going to happen. That's what Nabal is saying here. And I mentioned earlier that I do want to acknowledge you know, that, that, that what we see here is, well, actually, I didn't mention it earlier to you. I was talking to Dave Langley about it. We can apply some of these principles on a practical level, in a personal level. But I don't want to overdo that. Sometimes as we go through the Old Testament, it is typical to treat the Old Testament as a collection of moral examples and stories. And so typically what would happen is we go through a passage like this and we go, all right, what do we learn from David to apply to our own life? And we forget that this is part of the bigger story that God has inspired through his people to talk about the Lord, not to talk so much about us. So I do want to ask what we learn from this passage But then we're going to look at what's the bigger picture? What's going on in here with regard to Christ and his kingdom and and God's glory? So, personal application? Think about how you would have responded if you were David. And be honest, what would you have had in your mind as a king who, having provided protection and, and made a customary and reasonable request, was then slapped with Nabal's insult? I mean, and and consider the fact that you are stressed, you've been on the run, you're hungry, right? Ever had those situations where you're stressed and hungry and, and, and you're offended? How did you respond? What would you have felt? When you faced that employer that accused you of what you didn't do or or that neighbor who seemed intent on making your life miserable or a spouse who speaks unkindly to you or an un, an extended family member who gossips behind your back. What happened? What did you desire? At least this aspect here of David's story could be considered your story because people don't always treat you well and they don't always treat you with respect. They're not always interested in meeting your needs. And and I could say this as well, you are both victim and victimizer, aren't you? Just like me. Because I'm not always loving to others and considerate of others' needs. And sometimes my own peace and comfort and happiness are more important than thinking and respecting other people. And so as we look at David's response, we see, so David's young men turned away, came back and told him all this, and David said to his men, and we read that earlier, every man strap on a sword. What's going on? He has taken this with deadly serious. 
the ball's going to pay in his entire household. And the suddenness of David's response, this susceptibility to anger, and even the contrast with the last chapter with this gracious response to Saul may seem surprising. And at least it's a warning, I think, to us. Nabal hadn't declared war. He had just been a fool. But David is immediately filled with a desire for vengeance. And and so I did ask a moment ago, how would you respond? Should I say, how have you responded? Did you respond well? See, I do think that as we look at these events in our own lives, we find that the problem is not first a problem of behavior, but it's a problem of the heart. It reveals how deep our continuing need is of God's grace. How evil and fickle our hearts can still be. How easy it is to sow to the flesh. And the temptation is to forget who God is and what he has planned for us. You don't need to take vengeance. Your God will take care of the Nabals of your world. You don't have to panic at the lack of provision. Your God is the ultimate provider. You don't need to worry about your reputation. You have acceptance and an identity with the King of Kings. That's all I wanted to say about the personal moral application from this story, but now I want to ask a deeper question. What what does this first part teach us about Christ and God's kingdom? Well, whom does David represent? Whom has he represented in the book of 1 Samuel so far? We've seen him as a type of Christ, whether it was David's faithful reliance upon God facing Goliath, whether it was David's response to the suffering and persecution of Saul, or whether it was David's actions on the Sabbath. We have seen him as reflective of a Christ-like quality and behavior. And of course, David is not Jesus. Even in the midst of uh, that foreshadowing of who the true king will be, we see this imperfect king who is David. And Nabal. Who is Nabal? Well, when we think of a fool, he is the type of a fallen man. And when the Word of God became incarnated in human flesh, He came to bring light and truth and grace to a fallen world. But how does the world respond? Like Nabal. The Gospel of John describes how Jesus dwelt among His people, and yet His people did not receive Him. We know that through the Son, according to Colossians, all things were created and have their being. And much like David, who had protected Nabal's flocks, so does the Son of God protect our very existence. His common blessings fall upon His people as well as the lost. And Jesus' request is simple. Follow me. Follow me. Take up my yoke. Don't take up the yoke of the world. It's, it's beyond your ability to bear. It will result in your death. Take up my yoke. It is easy and light. But the fool responds, who is this Jesus? Just like Nabal says. Jesus is a madman. He's a pawn of Satan. 
Who does he think he is to expect that I'm going to give of my life, my resources, my efforts, and my service? Psalm 53 says that the fool says in his heart that there is no God. Nabal said, who is this son of Jesse? And the fool says, who is this son of God? And if you think Nabal is a fool, how much more of a fool is a lost man or woman who rejects the very king who enables him to even breathe? And how does God respond to the fool? Do we expect him to say, oh, well, he's just doing foolish things? No, we know from the scriptures that the wrath of God will be poured out upon the fool for eternity. As Paul says in Philippians 3.18, for many of whom... I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ and their end is destruction. We see Nabal at this feast engorging himself with his wealth and Paul says their end is destruction, their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. In 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul writes, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, with his mighty angels and flaming fire, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord in the glory of his might. In one of his parables, Jesus told the story of a rich fool who sounds a lot like Nabal. Luke 12 Reads, the rich fool said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. So relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, of all, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You can see the implied question in here. What is real wealth? It is not the laying up of earthly treasures. It's not having 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats or building larger barns. Real wealth is being rich toward God. You cannot serve both the idol of money and God at the same time. You can only have one master. And God will not share his worship, your worship, with an idol. Well, as we look here back at our passage, well, it may be that David as a man reacts out of proportion to Nabal's insult as a type of Christ His actions certainly portray what God's future response will be to the fool who rebels against him. There will come a day when Jesus straps on the sword. And before we leave this first section, let me also point out that David's servants respond to Nabal with sober-mindedness and humility. Verse 12 says that rather Then take a front at the blasphemy of Nabal. They turned away and came back and told David all of this. It may be tempting for the servants of Christ, we his people, to be greatly offended by how the world acts towards the church. And we should be offended in the sense that 
we proclaim the, the reputation and honor of our God. And there are many psalms that describe David's prayers that God would bring judgment and rise up against the wicked. But it's not for us to rise up against the wicked. What we see here in the David's servants is they restrain themselves and they go back and return to their master to see what he will do. What is his time? What is his response? As the author of Hebrews says, we must in all things continue to live honestly, even though we live in desperate times. We are to act as Christ, who 1 Peter 2.23 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. As Jesus said when he was here, the time was not yet for judgment. And so we see Jesus modeling for us not returning evil for evil, being willing to be long-suffering even in the midst of the insults of men because he is following the Father's timetable. I'm suggesting to you that is what our attitude should be, even as we are praying for God's judgment and mercy to be made known. Now as we move on to the next session, section, we meet Nabal's wife, Abigail. And we look at verses 14 to 22 of, of this chapter, if you still have your Bibles open. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything. We were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us. It's a great description of how thorough David and his men's protection was. They were like a wall that prevented thieves and animals away, night and day. Therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. He is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste, took 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, five seahs of parched grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them, and David had said... Surely in vain have I guarded all this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. You may remember, if you were with us in the study of the book of Proverbs, that the contrast uh, is so often made between the fool and Lady Wisdom. Remember that from Proverbs? So many times we read how Solomon spoke of what the fool says in his heart, what he does with his actions. But then Solomon speaks of Lady Wisdom, who's discerning God-glorifying words in part life. And I wonder if perhaps Abigail was a model of this for Solomon when his father later told him the story of this encounter. Verse 3 describes her as being discerning. Beautiful, and our passage, in fact, is 
a perfect contrast of the fool Nabal with Lady Wisdom Abigail. Look at what she does. First, as we read, she provides for the physical needs of David's men. He had asked for some food, but I don't think his expectations were overly high. You weren't, in this time and culture, you didn't go expecting to be engorging yourself with food. You, you expected to be treated well, to be thanked for what you had done. But she's taking bread and fruit and figs and meat with her on donkeys. And there with boldness as she sees these clouds of dust from the approaching horse hooves, right? These men set, bent on destroying Nabal and his household. She is boldly preparing to meet a furious David. Second look at verses 23 to 25. She asks for forgiveness. It says, when she saw David, she heard and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face Bowed to the ground, she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. This is the right response of any person who upon understanding the nature of their offense against God, prays for his forgiveness. Abigail humbles herself before David, begs him for his gracious mercy. And third, she blesses David. Verses 26 and following say, Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt, from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord, listen to this part, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God in the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Those are great, insightful, prophetic words, aren't they? They're the most pro- comprehensive prophetic words, in fact, that we've heard since we looked at Hannah's prayer in chapter 1. You can see how she tells David that the Lord will give him a sure house. And it won't be until Second Samuel 7 that we read how David is actually told by the Lord, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. But here Abigail is saying this with prophetic certainty. Here's here's David on the run. He's in the wilderness. But she has confidence and faith in God, and I love how she uses that metaphor of a sling. Did you catch that? It's as if she's saying to David, David, remember how you defeated Goliath? Remember how it was the impossible? How did that happen? What did you say at the time? You said that he spoke his words not against Israel, but against the Lord God of Israel. And you said you went out in the name of the Lord God of Israel. And with that sling, you defeated the enemies of God. And so, 
Abigail is reminding David bravely. David, your future is secure. And she adds, what will happen if he seeks his own revenge for verses 30 and following, saying, when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. Remember how subtly in some of the earlier verses David said the enemies of what? Not the Lord God of Israel. The enemies of David shall pay. Did you see that when when I had read that earlier from the chapter? It's subtle, but it is a distinct difference from what we saw during the Goliath incident. A.W. Pink, in writing about this statement by Abigail, said she pleaded with David that he would let his coming glory regulate his present actions so that in that day his conscience would not reproach him for his previous follies. If we kept more before us the judgment seat of Christ, wonder how our conduct, A.W. Pink says, would be more regulated as well. And that statement is wise. How often we react at the moment, don't we? Exacting vengeance for our hurt feelings. Remember what I asked you earlier? What have you done? Have you reacted impulsively? Have you said hurtful things to the people you love because they have offended you? Or wrote quick email responses without first praying about the content of what you're sending? I chose those examples because I've done that this week, so... I know that in those moments I have no thought for the judgment seat of Christ. I'm not thinking about the future. I'm thinking in that moment, I am mad. (laughs) I'm thinking in that moment, I've been offended. I've been wrongly accused. I've been mistreated. John Murray writes, the essence of ungodliness is that we presume to take the place of God and to take everything into our own hands. It is faith to commit ourselves to God and to cast our care upon him and vest our interests in him. And so that's what Abigail tells David. David, don't do something now that you'll regret later because you perceive this as an insult from the enemies of David and you forgot about the bigger picture of fighting for the Lord God of Israel and what your future is. Your future is bound up She says, bundled up with the living because of the care of the Lord God who has made you a sure house. She even uses the word follies. Did you catch that as well? Here we have been talking about Nabal's foolishness and she just kind of implies, David, if you continue with this, you're going to be engaging in your own foolishness. Well, last, Abigail makes a request. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. You know, and as I was reading this again and thinking about this, you can almost envision David and his men listening with their jaws wide open in surprise as Abigail's wise words soothe their fury. 
You can see furrowed brows and wrinkled foreheads start to smooth over. You can see those closed eyes and clenched fists start to open. And I even imagine David at the end taking a sigh. Have you ever done that? Maybe some of you men had your wives speak words of wisdom and you start to listen to the words after the, the red starts to clear out from your vision. You listen to the words and you start to apply them to yourselves and you go, yeah, that's right. That's what I'm, that's, that's, that's me. That's well said. Even start to look a little sheepish and what we know for sure is, is what we read starting in verse 32 that David says to Abigail, blessed be the Lord. This is why I encourage you men to do when your wives do in those moments speak those words of wisdom to you that you would put honor and glory where it belongs. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. God's working through your spouse in that moment. Even as he was working through David's future spouse. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, by morning there would have been left no one to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. I have obeyed your voice. And I have granted your petition. David knew the Lord's wisdom when he heard it. And he said, blessed be the Lord. Now we've been comparing David to Jesus, but it's important to note that while Jesus, that with Jesus, we don't see the same impulsive attitudes as David. Jesus made himself nothing. He took on himself the form of a servant. He lived among fools who rejected him crucified him, and yet he does not take vengeance for himself. And as Jesus told Peter in Gethsemane, he could have had a legion of angels at his command, and yet he did not come for judgment, but came to serve and become sin for us that we might have to not face the wrath of the Father. And perhaps we can even see a little of Jesus in that sense in Abigail as she pleads for forgiveness against Nabal in his household, even as Jesus interceded on our behalf before his wrathful Father. And God is indeed merciful to many of us fools. But there will be a time of judgment and wrath. And that's what verses 36 to 38 describe. And Abigail came to Nabal. Behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And his heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk, and she told him nothing at all until the morning. And in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. Most likely had a heart attack. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. The fool thinks that he can live forever and is accountable to no one. That is simply not true, and like Nabal, all will die and face the judgment. Only those who are covered by the mercy of Christ and his righteousness will endure. And I said there 
ways that Abigail typifies Lady Wisdom. I even said there are ways in which in, in her intercession she, she represents Christ's intercession. But I think we see more than anything else that Abigail is representative of the believer. And I'm reminded of Moses' wife Zipporah in Exodus 4. Many of you know that story, how Moses, after being appointed by God at the burning bush to lead the people out of Egypt, is nearly killed by the Lord for not having circumcised his son. He was disobeying the covenant of God, essentially declaring by his disobedience that he wasn't a part of the covenant people. He's about to lead out of Egypt, and in anger, God is coming at Moses to judge him. But Moses' wife, understanding what is about to happen, circumcises her son and comes to Moses saying, surely you are a husband of blood to me because of the circumcision. And as a result, the Lord relents in the course of moving against Moses. It's a serious passage. And we rightly often apply it to understanding the covenant of God with his people. But think about what Zipporah does. She intercedes on his behalf. That's what we're seeing here in 1 Samuel 25. If you will, David, much like the angel of the Lord in Exodus 4, is turned aside from his wrathful course of action by Abigail's intercession on behalf of her foolish husband. And what is Abigail's reward? We've already seen how David honors her mediation just as time and again God has honored the intercession of his saints. But Abigail is rewarded even further, and we see it down in verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and kept back me, you know, kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. And so we see in the next verses that he takes Abigail as his wife. And friends, as we continue in this, in this last little bit here, as we see these final types and, and foreshadowing, what, what's happening here as Abigail becomes the wife of David? We might say that she's become the, the wife to a new husband. And Romans 7 says, we were once married to the law. But when the law was crucified with Christ by its death, we were free to marry another. And what's meant by Paul in that passage is we were free to marry our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And that's really kind of what's an illustration behind the scenes here. Abigail, as representative of the believer, David, representative of Christ, we can see she was once married to a foolish man married to the flesh, but Nabal dies, and she is freed to marry to the one who typifies Christ. As we look at this and we, we ask, wow, there's, there's a lot here. There's both a lot here for personal application, but also a lot that, because we know the whole story, really just highlights again for us the beauties of God's kingdom and of his glory. It's rich with spiritual lessons. How blessed for every sinner who receives and accepts the saving message of Christ and becomes married to a part of the bride of Christ, which is the church. 
This final thing here from John 5.24. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I see that in Abigail. I see that in God's offer to us. I commend that to you that we learn these lessons from God's word today. Let's pray. Lord God, as we think upon, meditate upon these things from your word, I pray that we would again think about ourselves. How often have we been like Nabal? How often have we been like an impulsive David? Have we also failed to respond with grace and long-suffering? Have we instead responded with impulsive anger at offense? Or I pray that we would learn from David's counsel from Abigail to remember our future, to remember what you have promised us, that vengeance is yours. Lord God, as we think about these things, may we also be thankful for how you've provided so many rich lessons, not only for us personally, but also these pictures of Christ, these pictures of your church, of the world, and remind us of whom we want to serve. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.